Welcome to the Gutology Podcast. Over the next six episodes, we're going to bring you the science behind naturally healing and nourishing your gut. If you're listening to this, uh, you might be struggling with gut-related symptoms uh, or just simply looking to optimise so you can improve your gut health. Uh, My name's Ollie Gallant. Uh, I'm a radio host, a a podcaster and, and filmmaker. I spent most of my 20s battling with pretty heavy gut-related health issues. And then in November 2017, I met Julia Davies and all of that changed. Julia is the brain behind the Gutology podcast and our co-host. She's a nutritional therapist that uses functional medicine uh, to help people with gut-related issues. It's something new. It's something completely uh, strange for Julia to be here. Never been in a studio Absolutely. before. Absolutely, yep. Um, so we're, we're starting this together. But Julia's methods completely changed the way I thought about my diet. I transformed my health in less than a year and it had a really profound impact on my life. And I felt very passionately off the back of that, that everyone should have access to this information and it not should... It shouldn't just be for a few who have the finances or the resources to be able to do it themselves. Now, there is a whole host of support for you. Right now, you can go to www.gutology.co.uk where you can get your free six-week plan where you can start your own journey towards optimising or improving or recovering your gut health. There's going to be six episodes in this series, so click subscribe on your podcast app now and you'll be able to get all of those. And you're going to get to hang out with both of us as we talk about something that I've become fascinated with, borderline obsessed with at times, and something that Julia spent her whole life studying and will really bring the science behind the whole thing. In episode one, we're going to be talking about the fundamentals of how your gut works. We thought this was a great place to start because in some ways it is so simple yet so complex and it's something that all of us have and it's something that's going on behind the scenes as we speak right now in every single one of us, but hardly any of us know really how it works. We'll also talk about the latest gut health news. We'll give you some tips that you can take away today and implement right now for free that won't cost you anything. You don't need to buy any supplements to do it. Um, And we'll also talk about some stages that are coming along to how you can do some instant things to improve your gut health. But Julia, I thought the best place to start was how does the gut work? What are the fundamentals of it? Because for many of us, it is you shove the food in, you don't think about it. And in 24 hours or for some people 72 or whatever yeah yeah. it comes out the other end and that is a disclaimer as well this is a safe space to talk about things we don't normally talk about so we're going to talk about poo and burping and digestion and all of the gory bits that come with it yeah okay i mean it's interesting that you should say like how does it work and we just think it's just a, a hole to put our food in and then come out the other end but actually like diet related diseases it's becoming more in the last five years more known in the scientific world that actually diet does have the impact that we didn't think it had so you know um in terms of in terms of the gut it's effectively like the interface with the environment so later in today's episode we're going to talk this will blow your mind we're going to talk about some of the things that the gut affects and some diseases that you would never have put two and two together but yeah, let, let's start there. Let's start with mm-hmm. top to bottom, literally, literally okay. <laughs> how it works. Right. Okay. So um, first thing that happens or that's meant to happen is you think about food. Okay. So you think, what do I have for dinner? You're preparing your food, you're chopping your food. Ideally, this is sort of the traditional way of doing it. And when you're thinking about it, what's happening in your body is you get lots of hormones and lots of chemical signals that start. And what they do is they trigger secretions in your body. They trigger lots of fluids in your mouth. Your saliva gets going when you're a bit hungrier. Your stomach acids get going and all the juice is there. So just as you're thinking about food and you know seasoning it and preparing it, that is actually starting off the digestive process. So if we're 
grabbing a burger or microwaving a bit of food or rushing through our food on a yes. lunch break. It genuinely, though, yes. is that actually going to have an impact on how we digest it? Yes, it is, because you're missing that whole phase, that whole phase of digestion. You're missing it. It's called the cephalic phase of digestion. So it's it's when you're seeing, you're smelling, you're, you know, you're looking at your food, you're in, anticipating what it's going to taste like, you're adjusting spice levels and things like that. And this actually is hormonally affecting your digestion so that when you eat it, your body is ready for it. So you're saying then if I'm on the... If I'm on the motorway and I'm rushing to a meeting and I'm yes. wolfing down a sandwich, yes. I will digest that sandwich differently as if I sat down at home, yes. I slowly prepared it and yes. then it... Yes, absolutely. And that's where we go wrong because of all the other stresses and pressures, stresses and pressures in our lives, we are often like just grabbing food. We're not thinking about it. We're literally just on the phone to somebody in, you know, in a shop, in a supermarket. Right, I'll get that. That looks like something lunch related. And then you're eating it whilst on another phone call or whilst on the computer doing so something it's, else. It's almost like going to try and lift weights without having done any warm up. Warm up, yeah. Yeah. You're going to pull something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that is the one thing. And it's, you know, it's subtle in terms of, you know, how do we digest food? Because we haven't even started eating anything yet. We haven't put anything in our mouths, but it's a really important bit. And modern living has sort of just disregarded that really, because, you know, it's, you know, it's really nice to see families that eat together now. And it's really nice to have people that would have a lunch companion, say. But, you know, in the way that we are, most people are just grabbing on the run and quite often eating alone as well. So you're losing the community around it. So all of those factors actually do disrupt your digestion before you've even put food in your mouth. And so once you've gone through that, you've um, you've hopefully slowly prepared a relatively healthy... And I think, yeah. I think also that's the big thing about this podcast is it's, we're going to talk realistically. You know, there is, there is so, there's so much here about, you know, you, small minor steps and it becomes exponential. I think the, the worst thing you can do is say, right, everyone needs to be eating... Uh, organic meat and preparing it themselves. And I think this is about small incremental things that you can do that each episode that you listen to, you can do tiny things and they will make a huge difference. Yeah. And it's about starting slow. And I think that's a great thing. Just think about your food. Yeah. And that sounds crazy. <laughs> that was the first step. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember right. when you first yeah. said that to me and I was yeah. like, what? Like, that doesn't make a difference to how I eat. So after that, you've thought about mm -hmm. your food. Um, you shove it in your mouth. Yeah. Three chews and it's straight down. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're blessed with teeth. This is a really important thing we have. We have teeth. We have lots of teeth in our mouth. So um, a lot of people don't use their teeth or don't don't eat food that requires they use their teeth because it's been sort of pre-processed, mushed up stuff, you know, that's microwaved. But actually chewing the food, you, your mouth is the only place where you have the ability to chew. So something that was told to me probably 25 years ago was... Do you think that you have teeth in your stomach, Julia? No, you do not have teeth in your stomach. So if you don't chew it in your mouth, then it's not going to get chewed up anywhere else. So this like, you know, you must have heard like you must chew your food 20 times, 25 times. You don't actually have to chew your food 25 times, but it's just the message is there to say, use your teeth, because what you're doing is you're mechanically breaking down those that food into really, really small bits so that all you've got later on in your gut is chemicals to break it down. And, you know, it's, you know, you, you wouldn't you don't want to swallow chunks of things whole because it's going to put a huge amount of pressure on the chemicals in your gut to then get to it. What you really need to do is ideally chew up your food so much that you're increasing the surface area that then all the other chemicals can act on to then break it down. So teeth and chewing is really, really important. Um, and again, when you're rushing, that's the one thing that that just goes, you know, we've all been guilty of it. I've been guilty of it you many times. You just inhale your food. You're like, I've just got to get it done. Um, but actually, again, you're missing a major, major aspect of the digestion that you've got control over there. Um, because, you know, once once it's swallowed, it's not in your conscious control. So whatever is, is down to whatever your gut can do by itself then. So what you need to help it along by... Um, eating not you don't have to eat slowly every single day but really just being more conscious of being able to chew it and then once it goes from your mouth you chewed it well it goes down into your stomach what next okay so um because that's the point where we yeah. we genuinely switch off it's not a part of us we're not having to think about it we don't do anything it's all a yeah i'm sure that's like your sympathetic like what do they 
It's so autonomic nervous autonomic. system. It's like not under your conscious control. Right, You're not okay. aware of like, I must churn my stomach three times to mix this together. You know, it becomes something that you then don't consciously think about. But what happens before it gets to the stomach is when you are chewing, you're releasing a lot of saliva. There's literally litres of fluid that comes out in your mouth in a 24-hour period. Like one and a half litres of saliva will be made in the day to digest your food. You know, it's a fairly constant thing. But when you're hungry and when you're eating, it comes, you know, it's quite a lot of fluid there. So what that's doing is it's kind of providing like a soluble area if you like so that when you're chewing up that food you can then put it into a nice sort of mushy mix to swallow and then it goes into your stomach like that so if you know if you've got if you're stressed or anxious and you get that dry mouth feeling that affects your digestion because you're not having enough saliva being produced to mix with it so that when you swallow it again you're swallowing it not in the right kind of form that your stomach's ready for and then when it gets down into the stomach that's where the acid comes in yes Yeah. Okay. So our stomach is the most acid portion of the whole body. There's no other area in the body that's as acid as the stomach is. You know, in terms of pH levels, which is a scale of how acid something is, we're looking at 1.5 to 3, which is extremely acid. So how would that compare to like battery acid or do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So battery acid is more like, I think like pH one, something like that, but it's very, it's not far off, you know, it's really, really strong acid. And we think of acid as for some reason, our sort of interpretation of acid is quite negative. Like you don't want too much acid. But, yeah. But is that the case? No. So this this could be a, an entire hour in its own right, to be honest, with how much acid you should and shouldn't have. Because should we talk about what it does first off and then we can kind of... Yeah, in like later episodes, yeah. we're, we're going to go through these things yeah. and, and, and we'll say, look... If you're having these symptoms, it could well be to do with stomach acid. And here is what you need to do to get that right. But let's just Uh, let's just go from top to bottom of how this is worked. So what the stomach acid is meant to do, it's designed to do is break up the proteins in your food primarily. And it also activates some digestive enzymes as well. So an enzyme is something that eats something else. So think like the old Pac-Man, you know, it's eating away at something. So that's what an enzyme is in the body. And there's thousands of different types. So the acid is there to actually make the enzymes work. They don't work unless the acid is strong enough. So the acid itself breaks down proteins, but then it's triggering other things to break down other things in the stomach. So if you don't have enough acid, you can have problems digesting meat. So, you know, some people will say, whenever I have a steak, I just can't, it sits heavy for Hours. Yeah, weirdly. I used to have this and I never made the connection, but mm. I always feel really nauseous when I ate steak. Yeah, yeah. So it's because it's sitting in your stomach because you didn't have enough stomach acid probably. And so it just, it keeps churning and churning and it's actually weakening this, the, the, the attachment of the sphincter that closes off the stomach at the top. And actually sometimes that can even cause reflux and can cause some discomfort. But what's really happening there is a shortage of acid, which is what you need to break down all those really strong protein fibres. So that's that's what was happening there. So when you get that right, it yeah. should be broken down. Yeah. And then where does it go from there? So it goes into the small intestine. So now we're talking, so the entire gut is essentially like a really long tube going from your mouth right through to your bum, okay? And so when you swallow your food, it then opens out into like a bag, if you like, which is your stomach. So it's like an open area, which is where lots of stuff goes on. It might stay there for depending on what it is, an hour, two hours, something like that. And then when it's ready, when it's in a good sort of form, it will be released into the small intestine. And the first bit of the small intestine is an area called the duodenum. And what it is, it's like a, it's a very short bit of intestine when it leaves the, the stomach before it goes into the next bit of intestine. And it's where it meets all of the releases from the gallbladder and uh, from the pancreas as well, because the gallbladder will release something called bile, And it puts it in that area and the pancreas will release lots of digestive enzymes and also puts it in that area. So you would think that that would be in the stomach, but it's not. No, it's not. No. So all that's really happening in the stomach is you're digesting your proteins and you're activating some of the enzymes. But not a lot of things like carbohydrate digestion, not a lot of that happens in the stomach. That happens further down. And this is why some people have problems breaking down like carbohydrates and stuff like that it can cause problems further down because that's where it's all being fermented yeah but the interesting thing is if your stomach acid isn't good enough then it doesn't give the right signals for your pancreas 
to release all of that enzyme as well. So it has a knock-on effect. So normally, because... So remember I said that the stomach is the most acid place in the whole body. So the throat and the esophagus going down into the stomach is not able to deal with that acid. And as soon as you leave the stomach, it's not able to deal with that acid either. So the top and the bottom of the stomach are closed off by sphincters, which are these little muscular bits that keep all the contents safe within the stomach until it's ready to be released. So as soon as it comes out of the stomach, the food itself, or what it then has now become, is really acid. So the pancreas's job is to get a whole load of bicarbonate, which is hugely alkalizing, to start neutralizing the acid immediately. So it needs the acid signal to release the bicarbonate. But with the bicarbonate comes all the digestive enzymes. So if it's not acid enough, you don't release as much bicarbonate, you don't release as many digestive enzymes. So you have a like downstream error. I'm not sure if this is reassured because it is so complex or more complex than I would ever have imagined. I'm not sure if that is overly reassuring because it just feels yeah. like there's a lot to go. It's miraculous. Wrong. Like you couldn't design this, you know. I think it would take like the world's best engineers to design the digestive system from scratch, you know, and even then it wouldn't get it right because there's so many subtleties of things that go wrong. But, you know, I think because it is a system of digestion, it's the digestive system. So it relies on a huge number of working parts all fitting together in order to get that end result. So, you know, if we just go back to the absolute basics of what the gut does, it's to absorb nutrients that our body needs for energy and it's to decide what's waste and get rid of that. And that's really what it's trying to do. That's the kind of aims and purposes of it. So all those things get released into the small intestine and that then starts to break down like carbs and and, um, roughage and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so um, at that particular point then, you're getting a lot of digestion, like most of the sort of breakdown of um, all the carbohydrates and the fats and the proteins, most of that is happening at this area. So we get in the, you know, as it's moving through. So it's a very dynamic system. Things are moving through in a kind of one-way direction. Um, but large, largely the actual digestion, like the chemical breakdown of the food, in order to get it into small enough particles to be absorbed into our bodies... That's happening in the first bit of the small intestine there. So um, when we haven't got enough secretions, what tends to happen is low levels of enzymes will cause things to not be broken down properly. If they're not small enough, they won't be able to pass into the body. So they end up staying in the intestinal tract and just moving along as it moves along. And then they start fermenting. They start mixing with bacteria and they start causing gases. And this is when you get bloating and things like that. If you had a good um, release of acid and then enzymes as well, normally all this stuff is broken up and absorbed before it can actually cause so you aggravation. you won't get the bloating. So you don't get the bloating if that happens. So normal, so it, it might be easy to actually genuinely believe that it's normal to bloat after a meal because it's so common but it's not normal physiology. That's something going wrong with the system. Yeah, that is crazy, isn't it? Because mm. how many people just, you almost laugh, don't you? You're like yeah. We all say we call it like a food baby. Yeah. And we're like, oh, yeah. look, you know. But but that is quite strange to think that that, that isn't just normal run-of-the-mill stuff. There's something yeah. that, and, yeah. and it starts to make you think as well that whatever the problems are along the way, you you have to start at the top to get, yeah. The other bits, right? Because you're even saying that, like the bloating feels like, oh, there's literally something that's gone wrong at the bottom bit. Yeah. But it's not. It's so, if something's gone wrong at the top, it could yeah. be having a knock on effect to something at the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. So then it goes yeah. small intestine into the large intestine. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, you mean the small intestine is quite long and then it, it meets, you know, the lower right level of your of your whole abdomen, it meets the large intestine. And then there is when you get into the real serious levels of bacteria. So this is our, you know, the microbes in our gut that are becoming much more famous. Yeah, um, the catchword of 2018, the microbiome. The yeah. microbiome. But, you know, the, you do get microbes everywhere throughout the gut, but, you know, in vast, vast numbers in the large intestine. So the Appendix is actually in that first region of the large intestine. So what was deemed useless and removed at will, you know, a few years ago, it's now considered actually to be pretty much like a master house of all the good good gut bacteria. So that if we take antibiotics or something like that, it's actually got some master strains in there that can reseed the areas of the gut that might have been depleted. So, you know, there's some important stuff there. Um, But then the large intestine's job, you know, it goes right up the right-hand side of your abdomen, right across sort of your belly button region and then right down the left-hand side of your tummy. So it's 
the major job of that is to make a solid stool. So until it gets to that point, the what eventually comes out as poo is actually it's very liquid, very, very liquid. But when it gets into the large intestine, what your body does is it takes all the water out of it right. and it makes it solid. So people that are getting quite liquidy stools, like loose stools, people describe it as, or some people say watery, some people I've had the most you know, strange descriptions of what, <laughs> of what what goes on. I've heard everything. But, you know, when it's not really forming properly, it's often because it's just got too much water in it. So there's some problem, largely due to probably a bacterial issue in the large intestine where it's actually blocking the water being absorbed back in or it's moving far too quickly along that area. So it's not being given the amount of time it needs to absorb the water back in. And at, just at this point, just to sidetrack slightly... If at that point people are going to the doctors and they go, it's just IBS or it's just this, Mm. are there ways that those things can be resolved without surgery or...? Yes, absolutely. I mean, IBS is kind of an umbrella term. That's what it is. It's like what I mean by an umbrella term. It's what's named when it's, you know, other more serious things have been ruled out. And it's what's called, it's not an organic disease. There's no measurable change there. If you were to put a scope into the, um, you know, an endoscopy or a colonoscopy to sort of visualise what was going on, there wouldn't be anything to see. So it's called a functional disorder, i.e. like your daily function is not working well. Yeah, so there could be people listening that have had diarrhoea for 20 years. And at that point, you're probably just thinking, well, that, there's just something wrong. No one yeah. can tell me what it is. I'll yeah. live like this. Yeah. But that's not the case. In in most cases, I mean, that's what I spend most of my life doing is trying to sort those people out and trying to help those people actually recover a normal gut. And I've had people that have said to me, I genuinely don't think my gut was formed properly because I was told by my parents as a child, I had all these digestive troubles and I'm now 52 and it's never got any better. And what, you know, I just don't feel my digestive system is formed properly. But those people go on to have normal bowel movement, fully formed every day going from absolutely never being able to do that before. And it can be difficult. It's not an easy thing to do. It can be difficult. But yes, it's possible. We're not going to rush into all of this. We've got six episodes ahead of us to go through each bit and talk about case studies of people, what you can do, what happened to me, my changes, all of those sorts of things. But let's let's keep on track for now, okay. um, literally, in, yes. on track in the large intestine. Yep. So that water starts to get removed. It starts yep. to look more like yeah. a stool, yep. hopefully. Yeah. In a we're talking about a working about, one here. Yeah, yeah. And then what happens? Um, so then, you know, about two or three times a day, you get like a kind of wave-like contraction that happens over your your colon, your large intestine. And what that does is it actually is helping to move the contents along. Um, so it actually really slows down. So the movement in the small intestine is pretty, um, it's pretty constant, pretty frequent, just like little by little being pushed along the tube. And we're talking about like a five and a half odd metre tube here. You know, it's not a small thing at all. Um, But when it gets the colon, the movement slows down to absorb the water. So just two or three times a day, you get like a wave-like contraction that you're not really aware of that then pushes the stool further to the end. And then what happens is it gets into the larger, um, the areas close to the opening, so the rectum area, and there's lots of nerves in the walls there. And what then happens is they get stretched And when they're stretched, it's telling the brain that there's some material there that then needs excreting. And that is that feeling It's that feeling of of needing to go. Yeah. So it's not urgency. It's just a feeling. It can be urgent. (laughs) For some people. It can be urgent for some people. That's a bit where break out into a run. (laughs) Absolutely. But it's really saying that, no, I need to go. I need to go now. And then luckily, you know, humans have developed uh, such a way in that we have a control over when we need to go. Um, Obviously, some animals just go when they go yeah but you know we are allowed we are you know we have designed a way to be able to choose when we to when we open our bowels and that can be a problem in itself like yeah. over discipline with where yeah. you go and when you go and putting it off and all yeah. that sort of stuff but yeah. but we can get onto that okay and then hopefully you you look back um smiling sweetly into the toilet and um what should be there because i know that sounds madness yeah but no one talks about poo. Yeah. No one knows what anybody else's <laughs> looks like. Yeah. So in a, if people are listening right now, 
Maybe tonight's an exciting yeah. bit of homework for you. Look back into the toilet and what hopefully should you yeah. see? OK, no, it's, it's a good question because like I, I do genuinely talk about this all the time, but that's my world. You know, this is, you know, this is my, uh, this you know, all, all of my consultations are largely related to this. It's an important question, but it's not necessarily your dinner conversation. So um, there's something called the Bristol stool chart that we've got on the website. And that will, um, th- that is a really great visual to see where you are on the um, on the scale and what it should be is it should be like sausage shaped maybe with maybe smooth or maybe with a few little cracks in it and it should all pretty much come out in one go so if it starts to come out if it's if it's formed and it's not watery but it's coming out in like little pebbles or like little stones some people um, might refer to rabbit droppings things like that this is not right this is not right for us at all it needs to be quite big sausage shaped and perhaps with a few cracks in and then if it is too watery or it's coming out in more like cow pat style again that's not normal so um it's remarkable how many people have said to me but that's normal for me and I'll say well it is it is right now but we're (laughs) going to change what your new normal is going to be and does Monday at the office feel like a storm not with Microsoft Copilot that feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly it's sunny again when Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Here's a question as well then. So that is the that is the normal shape. Do healthy normal people have variation is it literally like 30 days of the month Mm. every single day it will look like that or is it normal to have variations from time to time if you're eating different things or stuff's going on or yeah it's really normal to have variations it's really really normal i think as long as there's like a regular excretion of something then that's good so so would you be looking for if we're talking about you know, if people are listening today and they're going, well, I think I'm normal, but what would you say that if 70% of the time it looks like that or what sort of... Yeah, that would probably be about right, like 70 to 80 probably. So, I mean, it largely depends on what you eat. You know, if you're eating a good diet and you've got lots of fibre and lots of veggies in there, then, you know, you're probably going to have a bowel movement at least once a day, maybe even twice, and that yeah. would be normal. And in, in future episodes, we're, we're going to get on to constipation. We're going to get on to diarrhea or loose stools or cow pats as you call them we're going to go right round here and try and touch on as many areas as possible the whole idea of this podcast is to help you understand your digestion a bit better and improve it and 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 that not to cost a huge amount of money it's so expensive to go and see nutritionists now um there is a free 6 week plan that you can get you just need to go to gutology .co.uk and that's a great starting point. You know, we are going to get people that are really really unwell, but some people just want to optimize here and this will be a funnel that will hopefully cater for everyone, but you can start your journey here. One thing we're going to do every single week as well is bring you some news, something from around the world. I mean, it's incredible in the last 2 years how much it's come into, you know, if you can't pick up a newspaper now without seeing, uh, you know, microbiome, it's become the ultimate keyword, hasn't it? And it's something that is exciting, but we don't truly understand and there's stuff coming out all the time. So each week we're going to bring you uh, an up-to-date piece of clinical research or exciting study that's coming out um, that you can and hopefully convert that into sort of layman terms and, and say what that means. And, and this week it's, all, it's about mental health. It was a really interesting study. Um, it only came out three days ago from recording this. And it was about the link, and many people have heard about this, between the gut and mental health. And this is something that's really been building traction recently, but there's a lot of scepticism around whether that's possible. And the first population level study on the link between gut bacteria and mental health identified specific bacteria linked to depression and they provided evidence as well of a wide range of gut bacteria that can produce neuroactive compounds. You know, this is what this study was all about. The important thing about this study is lots of these have been done on animals and this has been proven. This is one of the first in its kind that was done 
on humans. So um, I think they tested about about a thousand individuals and they started to see correlations between what the gut bacteria looked like in people that were depressed. And I think they also did it with people with things like Crohn's. So essentially what they were saying is there are similarities between these people and what we think that might mean is that bacteria could well be having an impact on mood, how they're feeling, potentially anxiety and depression. But just to start with, how? Like in, in my small brain, how does that work? I think um I I think so I think there is a definite link between the gut bacteria and the brain. And I'm really excited that, you know, more scientific papers are coming out on it now because I think it's really fascinating stuff. Keep so, talking. I'm just having a fiddle with the cameras while we do this. You can see all the videos up online on the Okay. There we go. Um, but, you know, certainly in my practice, I've one of the most common things that I almost take for granted now and forget that it's even a big deal is that when we start looking at somebody's gut and really addressing all the imbalances that are there is they feel a lot better in themselves, in their mental health and their mental state. And they say, you know, one of the first, even if they haven't actually come as, you know, with anxiety or depression as a primary concern, it's just something that they have alongside, say, um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis arthritis or something else you know one of the first things to change often is you know what I that anxiety that I told you about just not an issue anymore and it's not even something we've been trying to get to I suppose the question is though is that anxiety being caused by having the wrong bacteria or not enough of the right bacteria and that is genuinely releasing chemicals and making us feel a certain way or is it that bacteria is giving us health symptoms, inflammation, whether you feel it or not, or Mm. pain or bad Mm. digestion. And that is lowering our mood. Because it's kind of like chicken and egg. I think it's, I think in all honesty, I think it's going to turn out to be a combination of all of those different factors. I think there's a lot of ways in which the gut communicates with the brain because the brain is very protected. It's, it's in it's it's wrapped in a skull you know you can't you can't get to it it's got a lot of internal protective barriers as well there's something called the blood brain barrier where even the blood can't access the brain unless it's very very important stuff so you know the how does the brain know what's going on how does it interact with its environment well it's getting a lot of that information from the gut that's the external bit but how like in my small brain how something that's going on in the gut where is the connection to the brain like how is that being okay so you've got the vagus nerve which is a major major nerve that goes directly from the gut to the brain and any kind of signals going through that can give the brain information about what's going on in the gut environment so that but, could be as simple as you need to go to the toilet yeah to something's not right something's yeah exactly and also the other things that happen is the bacteria actually produce chemicals that you can use in the brain so serotonin a lot of people have heard of that it's known as the happy hormone this is produced largely in the gut and what it's it's not considered that the serotonin that's made in the gut actually gets to the brain but what it does is it regulates what's going on in the brain so if there's not enough serotonin production in the gut for whatever reason then that is regulating how much is produced in the brain so there's a direct connection there but also things like you know melatonin is also comes from a similar kind of chemical this is what gets us to sleep so you know how does our brain know when to switch off at night it's because it's under the influence of melatonin this is largely regulated by the gut as well so the gut bacteria can actually produce these chemicals they can activate them they can break them down they can convert them into one version of themselves to another one of which works one of which doesn't And also what the gut bacteria are doing is they're releasing a large number of chemicals, some of which haven't even been identified yet, and that actually act as like signalling molecules to the brain that will say, you know, switch this on, switch that off. So there's an awful lot of influence that's coming from a healthy gut without even talking about what's happening with an unhealthy gut. So even in a healthy person that doesn't have anxiety and depression, there's a lot of scientific thought now that it's largely regulated and controlled by the gut bacteria. So it's mad to think then that if you've got some kind of like gut inflammation or or a low diversity of bacteria or whatever's going on, you that could be sending, maybe not producing enough melatonin. So without even realising it, that is affecting your sleep. Yeah. Now it might not be that your gut's making you depressed, yeah. but if you're having if the gut means that you're not sleeping as well and you're not getting that deep sleep, yeah. 
then we know that there are studies linked to poor sleep and yeah. depression. So yeah. it, almost it is chicken and egg at this stage. Yeah. But if you're treating the whole thing, mm. it doesn't matter as long as you... So I imagine, have you had people in your clinic that have been anxious and depressed, but they've come in and they said, look, I've had diarrhea for 30 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And a byproduct of recovering their digestive system mm -hmm. is the anxiety has gone away. Yeah, yeah. I've had it particularly with depression as well that's been really long-standing. And um, sometimes people are on antidepressants, but then find that for one one reason or another, they either want to come off them or they can't tolerate them or they're making them feel you know, more unwell in other ways. So those people really need a lot of help because the conventional treatment isn't so good for them. And that is a really, that's a really key area of people that I found some success with. And I've never, ever approached it, not at least doing some work in the gut first. I've never ignored the gut because in, in my mind, that is what is absolutely fundamental to getting that person right again. So moving on to like the bigger picture, I think, and for me, this is something that, that still blows my mind having sort of even been reading about this, spending time with you over the last couple of years, is that what surprises me the most is that they're now making a connection between some serious diseases, some major autoimmune conditions, and the state of our gut health. And, and, and what that means is, is that even more so than that, some of these things that we thought were incurable, or the only way that you could treat them was by serious pharmaceuticals, they now think by a change in diet, you can find relief. So I thought it'd be really interesting to just go through a few of those and from mm. your clinical experience, mm. what people have had and how they have recovered from those. Yeah. Well, a large aspect of my practice is autoimmunity. So that is one that, you know, it's it's pretty kind of clearly defined now that we, you know, we used to think that the autoimmune disease was more of a genetic problem. But now we know that that's like most people actually carry genetics for autoimmunity. But why does it manifest in some and others go on to live a completely healthy life? So, so there's give, more to it. Just give an example of some conditions. That... Oh, so like autoimmune, like rheumatoid arthritis, is something I see quite a lot of multiple sclerosis. Um, um Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, these are now considered autoimmune conditions as well. Um, diabetes. Yeah, there's, there's lots of different types, you know, Hashimoto's thyroid disease. There's a lot of different types of autoimmunity, but they can sort of be collectively discussed because the problem is, is with the immune system and the sort of dysregulation of that. And then the actual way the condition manifests is largely dependent on the genes of the individual in terms of it, it goes for a weaker area. So the um, autoimmunity is thought to, you normally you have to have some genetics present, but like I said, most people do anyway. But then there's some kind of issue with um, gut permeability. So this is something that we'll probably talk a lot more about later and in a different get episode. Leaky but, gut. Yeah, so leaky gut is how it's colloquially known. You know, we call it intestinal permeability because the gut barrier has got to be, you know, it, it's it's hugely, hugely important, probably the most important thing in the whole, bud, the whole body because it's got to be the barrier that protects the whole body from any incoming toxin, bacteria, infection, anything nasty. You can eat or drink what you like, but your gut barrier is there to say, no, that's not coming into the body. And the issues arise when stuff goes through the gut barrier that shouldn't. Yes. And what? The immune system tries to attack it? Exactly. That's exactly what happens. So when things start appearing in the bloodstream that should otherwise not be there, the immune system is like, hello, what's going on there? It will start to mount like an immune response and cause a bit of inflammation, which is the body's way of protecting itself. And then what happens is if this continues, and this is probably a 24-7 release into the bloodstream, all kinds of rubbish from the gut that should just be cleared out, then the immune system is like overworked and overstressed. And then it starts seeing, so for example, in rheumatoid arthritis, it sees aspects of the joints and thinks, oh, that looks a little bit like what I saw in the bloodstream. So I'm going to kill that as well. And it starts inflaming that bit of the joint and destroying the tissue. Okay, so you've treated a lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis. And we know how like debilitating, even like yeah. some people can be bed bound with this sort of stuff. Yeah. What results have you seen from people with rheumatoid arthritis that have 
that have come to you and, and ha- just give us an idea or an example of that. Yeah. OK. So, um, OK, so I'm just thinking of somebody that I saw yesterday and it was a follow up of somebody I've been seeing for about two years now. So it's not a quick fix by any means. Um, now, this girl was on a lot of medication and the first day she arrived in my clinic, um, I would never forget that day because it was so dramatic. Um, her her mum came in and she she brought her in the door and she said, my daughter's going to die and um, this was a grown-up daughter, by the way. How she old? was forties, forties. But her mum had brought her because she was completely in- incapacitated, and she said, I, "You've got to do something. You've got to do something." And she's been, she'd been through the medication, and it's for various reasons, things just weren't under control at all for her. And that was that was probably my most serious, most challenging case I've had. So her mobility was her mobility was terrible. She was brought in in a wheelchair, and her fatigue level was almost almost I mean debilitating it feels like you need a new word for what she was experiencing it was very very bad um and it took a, and she couldn't eat interestingly she couldn't eat anything she couldn't eat a vegetable she couldn't eat a bit of protein like a whole gut was just it was just broken it was broken so we had to use a lot of tricks of nutrition and different powders and things you can get just to get some nutrients into her and start her off and it was a slow start for the first six months it was very very slow progress but we just kept kept chipping away at it and now she's not on any medication now and she is she's on a number of nutritional supplements but not very many in the grand scheme of things and they're natural supplements they are natural supplements just to control her sort of inherent tendency towards inflammation her gut is fine now she can eat everything she has so many vegetables in her diet now she there's nothing she can't eat but she does have to be quite careful with the diet so as not to trigger the inflammatory process again but her gut is a completely different it is literally like I would have removed it, hosed it down, put it back in again, fixed everything that it's meant to be producing and doing. That's effectively what we're doing. It's taken two years to do it, but she's so stable now and she's absolutely fine. She doesn't need a wheelchair. Her energy level is, she has a 10 minute sit down each day. That's it. Um, and yeah, and her mobility's great. changed. Her mobility is fine now. She doesn't have, she's got some, she's got some deformities on her hands, on her fingers, and that probably quite possibly never go but um it will um you know it's not causing her any pain there's a little bit of restricted mobility with things like opening a jar but it doesn't hurt her anymore and she can do it it's just the what happens is that it sort of sets the joints out of place and your fingers start pointing in funny directions and it just makes them not as easy to use but there's no new swelling no new inflammation and no pain at all so give us an idea about the range of conditions that you think then are affected by the gut. So we've we've heard about um, rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. diabetes is one of them. Yeah. We know a lot of people are on medication. Yeah. You, what you believe that people can come for type one so, or two? So, I mean, type two diabetes is largely insulin resistance. So we're looking at the kind of lifestyle induced diabetes. And that, in my opinion, is pretty much reversible. You know, um, type one is a little bit more tricky because um, and particularly when people are on insulin medication because their pancreas has failed. But you can uh, you can still do an awful lot to optimise their stability of that because there's still a lot of type one diabetes aren't well controlled at all. Um, But type two diabetes certainly responds massively. But in terms of other conditions, um, you know, I think I mean, it's something that. I've been working, this is my whole, you know, 24-7 is, you know, what I'm doing is my belief is that the gut is actually at the root of all disease. Hippocrates said it. Two, how many thousands of years ago? Hippocrates said it. The, the gut is the root of all our health. So if the gut is not right, you can't sustainably fix anything else in the body. So I've also seen um, some, uh, some patients with Parkinson's disease um, and they've all got gut issues. They've all got gut issues and we started doing some laboratory measuring of certain parameters and, you know, picking up some data and some similarities between the people. And, you know, it's it's very much saying, yeah, OK, it's not proven yet, but certainly from my observations, there's definite links there. And, you know, the research is starting to come come flooding through now saying, well, they actually, yeah, there is certain chemicals that you can only see um, in the guts of people with Parkinson's disease. And I suppose for people listening that, you know, are are just looking to optimise their gut health, Mm. it's a bit of a stark reminder is that if you don't look after it, there are traps that you can fall into down the line. You you yeah. always think of your health as it is now. You never think of your yeah. future. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'll on our um, uh, plan that we've put up on the website you get now, gutology.co.uk, we can get a six-week plan. A lot of that is just around 
dietary advice as well. So you can get some simple tips. There are loads of articles on the website already about these conditions, but you can also get in contact with us via the website. You know, if you want to learn about certain things, you want to understand more. And there's going to be five more episodes where we're going to break this down in more detail. One thing we're going to do every single week is bring you a tip. Now, this is a tip that is free. And when I say free, I don't mean you don't need to pay for it. I mean, you're not need to, you don't need to go out and spend money to make a dramatic improvement to your gut health. And I think actually we've probably had a few of these today because we were talking about thinking about your food. I mean, that's such a massive thing, thinking and chewing. Like try and be mindful of that over the next couple of weeks and see if that makes a difference where you're just not rushing in the car and shoving a sandwich down. You're sitting down, you're having a few deep breaths. Maybe you're smelling the food if you haven't made it and you're being conscious of really chewing it down so you know that when it goes into your stomach, a lot of the work has already been done, especially if you are having some struggles as well. That will take the pressure off the system. Um, But one thing we were going to talk about today was eating and sleeping, because there's a really simple tip. And I noticed Mm. a massive difference from this, and I'm pretty religious with this now. Mm. So the big tip this week. Okay, so um, my big tip is to eat three hours before you go to sleep and then stop. Don't eat anything in the three hours before you go to bed. Okay, so um, um, why? Like, what does quantify that? Why? Okay. Okay, so what we need to do is we need to allow our digestive system to completely rest and then recover. And what it does then is there's a lot of housekeeping duties on itself and it's not able to do those when it's got food in the system. Um, so you want to get all of your food digested at least three hours before you go to bed. So if you go to bed at 10, don't eat anything after 7pm at night. And when I say don't eat anything, I also mean that cheese and crackers or that bit of chocolate or, you know, it doesn't mean stop your meals and it's then no food for those last three hours before bedtime. And what about... um like what if you're having like a hot drink or like a tea or something like that? That's OK, is it? Yeah, that's OK, really. It's OK because it doesn't take an awful lot of digestion. And if anything, a bit of fluid at that point might help to kind of wash things out in right. your gut. So as long yeah. as you're not dunking biscuits. I wouldn't it. go for like hot chocolate. You don't want a lot of sugar in your system at that night. You know, you don't want anything like that or even malty drinks, that sort of thing. But like, a you know, a chamomile tea would be an ideal thing because it's putting you in a restful state. It also can help with like cramps and things in the gut too. So that would be a really nice thing to just shut your digestive system off for the day and set you up for sleep. So the big thing to try this week then is just see if you can bring your eating time back a little bit. So you go to bed at 10, try and get all that food in before seven o'clock in the evening. We're not even saying at this stage, change your diet. No. We say try little tiny incremental steps. This is, I'm such a firm believer in this is that all of these things, you've got to start small. Yeah. You know, it's like... um, you know, when you, you, the Jordan Peterson effect of start by making your bed, mm. you know, if you, if your life's a mess mm. and you're struggling with debt and your relationships are poor, yeah. start with making your bed every day. It's small, little victories. And I think it's exactly the same thing with gut health. Don't be overwhelmed by all the information. Even if you go onto our website and there's so many different articles, just get the six week plan mm. and start today with just trying that over a week, just try and eat a little bit earlier. And it's just small incremental steps and it's, it's slow, steady progress with these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so to, to wrap things up today, cause we've, we've almost been doing an hour already. I think it's probably important to kind of reflect over the stuff that we've talked about today. And I think it's helpful in our conversations because I know very little and you have a real clinical experience there, but that allows me to ask the stupid questions that probably everyone else has. <laughs> yeah. So kind of reflecting on today, when you were talking about the gut from the top to the bottom, like the overwhelming feeling that I have is that there are so many things going on in there. And, and certainly when I was having some gut things starting on, I was thinking my sort of understanding is if, well, if I had diarrhea all the time, that there was something wrong there. There was something wrong at the bottom, mm. do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? And I couldn't even really make the connection to what I was putting in at the top. Mm. And so that conversation today when you talk about that sort of stuff makes me feel like you kind of have to fix the stuff along the way. And is that right? Would you start, like, is it a top-down approach where you go, right, let's start with what's going in and then the stomach and... The, Yeah. Yeah. So the way I work is understanding the physiology and then you use whatever means you have in order to just 
allow that to function. So the physiology of the gut is top down. It's it's one direction. And so we need to follow the direction. So if there is, think of it like a river and upstream and downstream. So if there is a problem that you're experiencing at the bottom of the river, i.e. you're getting diarrhea, then you've actually got to look and it just, it might just be checking that, you know, Anything in the mouth, if that person not producing enough saliva, that will absolutely be having an effect on what the bowel looks like. And it's like sequentially going through from the top to the bottom through all of those processes, because if the whole thing works as a system and if it's if it's broken and you're getting a symptom of that, whether it's bloating, whether it's acid reflux, whether it's diarrhea or constipation, you need to look at the entire system as a whole. And I think one really important thing to say as well, and, and this was like a, something that I didn't really understand when I started out was I was under the impression, and I imagine there's probably a lot of people listening that will feel the same way, that a lot of people might have tried for three weeks to eat a completely clean diet. So just they've got rid of all grains, all dairy, thinking, well, I'm going to put myself through this misery and I will see results. And when nothing changes and you feel exactly the same way, this kind of complete deflation of, well, my gut just must be broken. Just by changing your diet isn't necessarily going to fix what's going on sometimes. It depends what the problem is. It depends. And I think the problem is it's the effect that the diet has. It's not the food itself. So the you can get lasting effects from eating the foods that don't suit you um, in that they're changing everything that goes on in that process of the gut digestion. So they're changing the bacteria, they're changing the enzymes, they're changing the acid levels. And when so when when you suddenly eat really clean for two or three weeks, it doesn't make any difference. It takes longer to change those right. things. But what is right for one? is inevitably not so good for the other. And it is very difficult to work out what the right things are. So the starting steps are, there's going to be five more episodes to come, which will hopefully give you lots of advice, information on yep. things you can do. And I'm sure along the way, you will find things that are relevant exactly to you. And that might be a starting point along with our six week plan. It's free. You can get it online at gutology.co.uk and reach out to a nutritionist near you. But for a lot of people, that is beyond their affordability you know, so it's about trying to prioritise these things. So we want to give you a leg up and a place to start. Um, episode two next week is all going to be about optimization. So we're going to be talking about microbiome. We're going to be talking about probiotics and how in turn that can help you combat disease or prevent or improve your overall gut health. And the microbiome as a whole is fascinating in itself. And I know we've talked about the function of the stomach today. But I think that there's so much press around it at the moment, but we all don't really know what it is or what's going on or what's right or wrong. Or should we be taking probiotics um, or which ones? Uh, so we'll get onto that. But in the meantime, go online to gutology.co.uk, get download the six week plan, have a look through the website. And if you've got any questions, you can fire them via the website there's a click through button on there and you can explore a little bit more uh, and you can rate and review as well on itunes just at the bottom of this podcast click down click rate and review and that will help other people that are looking to nourish their gut find a starting point on their journey we'll see you next time Bye -bye. <music>